0: So welcome to Gospel Growth in Pursuing Biblical Friendship. We are in session seven, titled Biblical Friendship in the Church History. So last week, Luke Balsma has introduced and reminded us of the greatest friend that we can find in Christ. This week, we will examine a friendship between Andrew Fuller and his friend John Ryland Jr. from the 18th century. So in other words, in short, we're going to be looking at the example of bromance from the 18th century. <laughs> okay, so now before we dive in, some of you may ask why look back on church history. I had the privilege of having Pastor Lucas as my uh, church history professor last year, and from his class, I've learned the importance of reading the primary sources uh, of the historical documents and also seeing the rich 2,000 years of legacy that we have as Christians, as as believers. So if there are certain things that we're wrestling with today, chances are that the saints of the old would also have wrestled with it in the past and that we can learn from them as to how they wrestled through and how they thought about the issue. So it is with the topic of friendship, I believe that there are lessons that we can learn from these examples from the 18th century as well. So then you may ask why these two specific Figures from the 18th century. You know, I could have picked the church father Gregory of Nazianzus and his friend uh, Basil or Basil of the Caesarea from the 4th century, or could have picked English dissertation Abbot Albert of Reveaux, and his friend from the 12th century, who actually wrote a classic work called Spiritual Friendship, or could have picked John Calvin and his reformer friends Pharaoh and Viret from the uh, 16th century. Or Esther Edwards Burr with her friend Sarah Prince from the 18th century as well. I think there's a lot of examples in the church history that we could have picked. However, these two particular gentlemen have caught my attention as these two friends recognized various ways in which God worked in human lives through the Word, through the ordinance of the baptism and Lord's Supper, and through prayer. And then they actually added the bonds of Christian fellowship as another means of grace that we can receive from the Lord. So I thought that was a pretty bold statement that they were making, that they were putting an equal standing of the friendship along with the prayer and the word and then also the Lord's ordinances, how important that is for Christian life. So therefore, I would like to examine their lives and learn from them as we continue to pursue uh, biblical friendship. So let's begin with prayer and we'll, uh, we'll dive in here. Lord, thank you that you have given us your voice your word to us, that, you, that your word is one that guides us, our path, and corrects us, rebuke us, trains us for all good work. But also, thank you that you have given us your ear so that when we do pray to you, that you hear us and answer us and do good timing as we pray according to your will. And lastly, thank you for your body, your people. May we pursue friendship that you have intended for us so that we may become more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, this is kind of the roadmap here for the session. First half of the session, I'm going to talk about who was Andrew Fuller, you know, some of his impact, his background, some of his significant work. And then second half of the session, I'm going to be focusing on his friendship with his friend John Ryland Jr. We'll talk about who was John Ryland Jr. and then glimpses of their friendship as they approach their own deathbed. So it's kind of grim. but. Oftentimes, I think when um, uh, one person is approaching their funeral, I think that there's a lot of significant weighty words that they may be speaking of that we need to pay attention to. So before we begin, how many of you in this room have, uh, have heard or are familiar with Andrew Fuller from 18th century? Okay, I got two people in this room. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad we're covering him today. Um, some of you uh, may know... William Carey. And could we have the slide uh, to be advanced, please? William Carey was uh, also known as the father of modern missions. And most of you have heard William Carey and probably have known William Carey. Andrew Fuller was actually his good friend. And actually, he was the engine that was behind the modern mission as he co-founded Baptist Mish- Missionary Society and sent William Carey to India through this mission society. John Piper was, actually would argue that Andrew Fuller was the mind behind the modern mission. So for those of you who are in, interested in, in mission work, um, possibly being sent out from this church, uh, along with William Carey, Andrew Fuller is a significant figure that we can learn uh, from, from the church history. So we'll do, do a, just a brief bio sketch here of, of Andrew Fuller. So Andrew Fuller was born in February of 1754 uh, in, in Wiccan small town farm um, in the countryside of the Cambridgeshire in Britain, in England. Grew up in a dairy farm that his parents owned. He had no formal theological training, but he became the leading theologian in his day. He began to do occasional preaching at his church in Soham at the age of 17. And when he turned 21, his congregation called him to be a pastor. So young pastor at the age of 21. Then the year after he became a pastor in Soham, he married his wife, Sarah Gardiner, in year 1776. Does that year particularly particular ring bell for you guys? That was the year that America declared independence against Britain. So Andrew Fuller became a pastor, but he also wore many different hats in his life. He was a pastor for 40 years. During this time, he raised a family. In fact, he had 11 children. Pastor a church, refuted a destructive heresy in his day, particularly hyper-Calvinism. We're going to talk more about that. And then he also found the Baptist Missionary Society, as we mentioned, with his, along with his band of brothers. For this Baptist Missionary Society, Fuller served as a main promoter, thinker, fundraiser. He traveled all over the place to raise the fund for the missionaries, and he wrote letters to the missionaries on the field for 20 years. One years. That's a significant work that he was putting into. Also, Fuller is known for his rope holder imagery um, to describe his firm conviction and his commitment for supporting missionaries. So if you have read William Carey, you may have heard this phrase, rope holding phrase. And this is one of his friends, John Ryland, accounts his story here. And he says, our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who are deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mind which had never been explored, and we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, William Carey said, so meaning there are a few men that are trying to go on to this frontier mission to India, and they're saying they had no idea what they were doing, right? And so the William Carey is now speaking to his friends, including to Andrew Fuller. He's saying, well... "'Brothers, I will go down into the pit, if you will hold the ropes.'" And that's where that phrase came from. But before he went down, William Carey, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of this rope. So William Carey is, in essence, saying, "'I will go to India as long as you guys support me and are, are behind me in this.'" And from the history, we know that the fuller indeed held that rope more firmly and with greater consciences than anyone else. He was a firm supporter of William Carey all through his life. Fuller also struggled with his depression, and he used a testimony of God carrying him through these struggles to minister to others, especially to those missionaries who were on the field struggling with depression. And when put together, his correspondence, like his letters to the missionaries on the field, actually totals over to 600 pages so he had an active supporting role in, in uh, providing spiritual guidance to the missionaries. Bottom line is that Fuller gave himself to the kingdom work, and he was a pretty busy dude. Okay? He also had a heart of a pastor as well. So due to his involvement in mission support and combating heresy in his days, he knew his pastoral work at times were suffering. So he lamented to his friend openly, to John Ryland Jr., he said, I long to visit my congregation so that I may, have, may know of their spiritual concerns and preach to their cases. In fact, this is what he wrote to a wayward member that had left church at the time, and he pursued him at one point, and this is what he wrote to him. And again, this was in the context of him having eight, uh, 11 children and losing eight children, actually. And he says, when a parent loses a child, nothing but the recovery of that child can heal the wound. And I think most, most parents in this room would resonate with that. If he could have many other children, that would not do it. Thus, it is with me towards you, nothing but your return to God and to the church can heal the wound. You can just hear and just his pulse of a heartbeat of a pastor. Further, this is what one of his deacons in the church wrote in his diary before two weeks of Fuller's death. This is his deacon grieving here. What a loss as individuals and as a church we are going to sustain Him that has so long fed us with the bread of life, that has so affectionately, so faithfully, so fervently counseled, exhorted, reproved, and animated by doctrine, by precepts, and by example, the people of his charge. Him who has lived so much for others, shall we no more hear his voice? So you can just sense that the uh, fuller had a heart of a pastor and his people also knew it. Now, of course, Andrew Fuller didn't come out of the vacuum. He also had certain people that have, had influenced him greatly. Now, just in the context here, in Fuller's day, secular rationalism was a prevalent thing, which was the view that appealed to reason as a source of knowledge and placed less emphasis on religion and traditional values. So some of his contemporaries at the time were David Hume from Britain, Jean Jacques Rousseau from France, Thomas Paine in America, some of the leading secular thinkers at the time. But also, Great Awakening was happening in America. So we had George Whitfield as his contemporary, John Wesley, and also to Fuller's account, he was most influenced by John Owen and Jonathan Edwards. This is what John Piper says about Andrew Fuller's uh, influence from Edwards. He says, Andrew Fuller, immerse himself in the scriptures and in the historic tradition flowing from Augustine through John Calvin, through the Puritans, down to Jonathan Edwards. The Bible was always paramount to Fuller. In Fuller's words, quote, Lord, thou hast given me a determination to take up no principle as second hand, but to search for everything at the pure fountain of thy word, end quote. So you can see how Fuller is saying, Bible will be my primary sources in all things I'm going to think about these things, right? And, it would, and this is one of the main reasons, John Piper continues, why it is so profitable to read Fuller to this very day. So he may have been a figure from 18th century, but John Piper is saying that he is a very profitable person that we should all be reading as Christians because he is so freshly biblical, because he is so grounded in the scripture. So what was uh, some of the Fuller's uh, significant work? Again, for the context here, Fuller grew up in a particular Baptist tradition that embraced hyper-Calvinism. And some of you may be asking, what is hyper-Calvinism? Hyper-Calvinism taught that God saves the elect through his sovereign will with little or no use of methods of bringing about salvation. In other words, hyper-Calvinism overemphasized God's sovereignty but underemphasized the man's responsibility in the work of salvation such as evangelism, preaching, and prayer for the lost. Therefore, hyper-Calvinists in Fuller's day did not see the need to preach the gospel to all people, especially to the unbelievers. So you can see how this is a problem. So some of his uh, uh, preachers from the hyper-Calvinist uh, tradition were refraining themselves and saying, we're not going to preach the gospel to the lost. That's a dangerous heresy. Therefore, Fuller, Fuller refuted this heresy vigorously so jonathan edward uh, work called freedom of the will i don't know if some of you may have may have read it heard it a significant work in, in our church history helped fuller to come out of this hyper calvinist tradition and embracing the biblical gospel and it and actually allowed fuller to write his significant work called gospel worthy of all acceptance in a nutshell this work addressed what was called the modern question how to preach the, to the lost and discuss the difference between the saving faith that is described in the scripture versus simply believing the facts from the scripture. So really able to help people to tell the difference between nominal Christian versus here are the real fruits that are being, coming out of your life because you are truly Christian, like having a real intrinsic relationship with the Lord. To give a little bit of a flavor of his work, I'm still reading it, by the way. This is a pretty dense work here. This is what Fuller wrote in it. He said, It appeared to me that we had, we had taken unconverted sinners too much upon their word. When they told us that they believed in the gospel, he did not doubt, but they might be believing many things concerning Jesus Christ and his salvation. But being blind to the glory of God, as it displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, their belief in the gospel must be very superficial. Superficial extending only a few facts without any sense of their real intrinsic excellency, which, strictly speaking, is not faith. So as Fuller was combating this hyper-Calvinism in his days, that is when he met his friend John Ryland Jr. So who was this guy, John Ryland Jr.? This is how they met in uh, 1776. Both of them are young bucks, young men, right? Were wrestling through hyper-Calvinism in their Baptist community, They were both pastors, so they were trying to figure out how to pursue renewal of their churches back to the biblical gospel. They often met to talk, to pray, to spend time together. And this is what John John Ryland Jr. noted in his sermon, Indwelling in Righteousness of Christ. He said, Fuller and I shared a strong attachment to the same religious principles, meaning same faith, (laughs) a decided aversion to the same errors referring to the hyper-Calvinism that they were battling with. And predilection for the same authors, referring to Jonathan Edwards. They both love Jonathan Edwards. And a concern for the cause of Christ at home and abroad. Do you sense the uh, mark of the Christ-centered relationship already between these two here? They're saying they were so concerned for their own local church and for the mission, that's what, uh, that's what joined them together in their friendship. So who was John Rowland Jr.? As a kid, he was known for his strong appetite for learning and reading. And this is what his father, John Ry- Ryland Sr., wrote in his di- diary. My son John is now 11 years old. He has read Genesis in Hebrew five times through. Do you, see, do you sense the, the, the father's pride towards his son here? He read Greek uh, New Testament before nine years old right? He's like bragging about his son here. What in the world, right? John Ryland Jr. was a smart cookie. John also was recognized for his gift of preaching and became a pastor when he was 18 years old for College Lane Baptist Church in Northampton, uh, and he co-pastored with his father. And again, as mentioned, John Ryland Jr. was also significantly influenced by Jonathan Edwards. So now here are some of the glimpses of their friendship from the historical documents that we have today, starting with when Fuller was at his deathbed. So when Fuller lay dying in April 1815, he was asked if he wanted to see his oldest friend, Ryland Jr., whom Fuller described his relationship with him as long and intimate friendship that he had lived in and hoped to die in. And this is what he said to the, to the question. He said, no. John Ryland, he can do me no good. <laughs> right? You've got to understand the context to, to really understand because this re- response seems to be really odd. And Fuller continued, We have enjoyed much together, which I hope will prove an earnest of greater enjoyment in another world. There I trust we shall meet and part no more. You sense that Fuller understood that there's a transcendent element in biblical friendship. He's saying... He can't do much good for me at this point in time. I'm going to go see the Lord anyways. We'll see him later, right? This is uh, what Michael Haken, who's the professor of the church history and biblical spirituality and director of the Andrew Fuller Center at the Southern Seminary. This is what he says about this quote. He says, clearly, Fuller's feeling about his friendship with Ryland Jr. had undergone no alteration whatsoever. In the light of his impending death, however, there's only one friendship which Fuller knew to be utterly needful in that moment, his friendship with the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he, we, we uh, also have a further glimpses of their friendship from Fuller's uh, actual funeral. So nine days before he died, Fuller asked his friend John Ryland Jr. to preach at his funeral. That's quite the task, don't you think? Like imagine you, had, you have your own friend and you know your friend's about to go and he or she's asking, hey, will you uh, do a eulogy for me in my funeral? And that was a task that John Ryland Jr. was tasked with and he actually accepted and he preached it this way. He said, I never had a friend who was so willing to stand by me even in such services as most others would wish to decline. Yet I never had a friend who would more faithfully freely, affectionately give me warning or reprove if ever it appeared necessary or whom I could more readily and freely and without the least apprehension of giving offense tell of any fault which I imagined I could see in him. Do you, do you hear that? They, were, they had this open, candid relationship. That's one of the marks of the biblical friendship that we cover that he's saying, I was so free to even... Express that towards him, and then vice versa. There's a mutuality there. And this is what he continues. And this, I think, is the best friendship in the world. For no man is faultless. And true friendship will not be blind to the failings of those who love best. And this most faithful and judicious friend is taken from me. And never will my loss be repaired upon earth. And there's a historical document that it talks about how Fuller was trying to hold back his tears as he's trying to preach this about his friend. Now, I want to call the attention to the phrase when it says, without the, a least, the least apprehension of giving offense. Now, I uh, realized that this statement carries a further weight when I uh, saw further context behind this phrase here. So as Ryland Jr. and Fuller had a, actually, they had a strong disagreement on this topic of Ordinance of Lord's Supper. So in the historical document, if you examine through, they actually disagreed on this topic. In what ways? Fuller was of a mind with the dominant position of his day since the mid-17th century, which was to hold closed Lord's Supper position, meaning only believers that are baptized and are the members in the church could take the Lord's Supper. So that was Fuller's position. However, this closed Lord's Supper position was challenged by John Bunyan in the 1670s, uh, 1670s and also by John Ryland's father, the Ryland Sr. Um, so thus, Ryland Jr. was persuaded that the Lord's Supper should be open to all Christians, regardless whether they had been baptized as believers or not. So Fuller is saying, no, only the, peop- the believers that are baptized or members of the church should be-, should be taking communion. And then Ryland Jr. is saying, no, all believers should just take communion. And they disagreed quite a bit. Right? So, what in this funeral, what Ryan Jr. is saying that was saying is that Fuller and Ryland were secure enough in their friendship to disagree about this controversial topic and not have it destroy their friendship. Right? And further, Michael Haken says about this Fuller and Ryland genuinely knew how to give each other space to dis- disagree on what a significant number of their Baptist acquaintance regarded as an essential. Issue, So you can see how even in the friendship here, you may actually disagree with your close friend, and that's okay. But the the fact here, the example here, is that they were okay to disagree and still maintain close bond of friendship. Another glimpse of their friendship from the first major biography appeared in 1816, year after Fuller's death, was written by John Ryland Jr. So after preaching a funeral sermon of his friend, year after his friend wrote a biography of his friend. I thought that was really cool, right? Could you imagine, like, you're like, I'm going to write a biography about my friend because I know him intimately, right? And hopefully the readers who read this will benefit from his life. So in the introduction of this bio, Ryland Jr. wrote it this way. Most of our common acquaintances are well aware that I was his oldest. He was just only, like, one year older than him, by the way. And the most intimate friend... And though my removal to Bristol about 20 years ago placed us, at, placed us at a distance from each other, yet a constant correspondence was along maintained. You guys hear the, the biblical marks of constancy here in this letter or the introduction here? And to me, at least, it seemed a tedious interval if more than a fortnight elapsed without my receiving a letter from him. So... What, what John Ryland is saying here is that he became a president of the Bristol Baptist Academy, so he had to move 13 miles away from Ketterling, where Fuller was. I mean, it was, it was kind of a big deal back then, right? 13 miles, so now the, main, the medium of the letter became the main way that they kept their friendship alive. For how long? For 20 years. They wrote letters to each other. Talk about bromance letters, Right? <laughs> Ryland noted also that if he didn't hear from his friend, from his, uh, from his friend Fuller, at least once in every two weeks, he found it tedious. This is an old English term to, to mean painful and upsetting. So he, meaning he's like, my friend is forgetting about me. He's not writing it to me. So he'd get upset and he'd write him back, right? So again, I see the marks of the closeness and constancy from their examples here. And now as I'm reading this, you know, I wonder if some of us need to, again, reevaluate how we maintain our, some, some of our certain friendship in our own lives. You know, especially the ones that have physically distant from us at this time. You know, I think this example really challenged me again to evaluate how I can grow as a friend to others, especially the ones that have physically moved away from me. Another glimpse of friendship from Ryland Jr.'s funeral. So, Fuller has died, the eulogy was preached. Now John Ryland himself is approaching his own death. The Ryland Jr. outlived Fuller by a decade, by 10 years. So when Ryland died in the May of 1825, Ryland's friend Robert Hall Jr. preached at his funeral. Not sure what's going on here, but there's a trend of preaching at friends' funeral here. Robert Hall noted in his mini discourse, this is a really lengthy mini discourse, and I'm gonna just compact it for, for you guys. He says, although Christ didn't prescribe the cultivation of friendship, but did admonish his followers to pursue a virtuous life, which has proven to be the best of all soils for the flourishing of friendship. Virtues such as humility, forbearance, gentleness, kindness, and empathy were the best preparation for the development of friendship. Do you guys hear that? He's arguing although Christ didn't directly speak about, hey, pursue friendship in this way. However, he taught many virtues that set up as a fertile soil for us that will launch into a beautiful friendship that we can have as God intended. In addition, Robert Hall touched touched on this idea that our joy is made complete by expressing and sharing the joy together with your friends. Remember this idea of doubling the joy in friendship? Yeah? Okay. So, John Piper also captured this similar idea in his book, Desiring God, which actually had a significant impact in my own life. He said, We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed in praise. If we were not allowed to speak of what we value and celebrate what we love and praise what we admire, our joy would not be full. Of course, this was in the context of delighting in God, that we should express our full joy in Him. That's when our joy is made incomplete. However, I think the same principle can be also applied to God-given friendships as well, as God has given those people into our life, so that we can express the joy together so that our joy could be made complete. So this is what um, Hall Continues, he says, the satisfaction derived from serving the most beautiful scenes of nature. I mean, come on, we live in Utah, right? We can resonate with this quote here. Or the most exquisite productions of art is so far from being complete that it almost turns into uneasiness when there is none with whom we can share it. Did you catch that here? He is saying, Serving the most beautiful scenes of nature can turn to an uneasiness when we don't have someone to share that moment with, right? Imagine you're at the top of the angel's landing or beholding the narrows from the Zion's National Park, but you're alone. And you're just like baffled by the scenery. You're just making, oh, wow, right? But there's nobody around you to share that moment with. But we all know it is so much better when there is a person that we care about and love are there with us to share that moment together. Right? They're doubling of the joy in that way. So, Hall elaborates how the friendship grows us further. He says, the Next to immediate guidance of God by His Spirit, the counsel and the encouragement of virtuous and enlightened friends afford the most powerful aid in the encounter of temptation, in the career of duty. It's referring to God given calling and ministry in one's life. Do you hear that? He's saying, Next to God, right? the secondary measure, the means of grace that comes to us is through our friends. That's a, that's a pretty strong statement. And he says, when one's friends are absent, I love this line right here. When one's friends are absent, the remembrance of this mutual attachment of kindred spirits has a distinct pleasure, refreshing and exhilarating the mind. So he's saying even our friends may pass away or maybe distance by a physical distance there is this moment of us thinking about those such a precious friend that we are fond of and there, it gives us such a joy to even think about them, right? And there's a pleasant emotion that come, come, come from that. So y'all agree? Because it certainly does for me when I think of my certain uh, precious friends. Uh, truly, they're the gift from the Lord. Hall then continues and he concludes his mini discourse this way. It says, Friendship is a reserve of strength Ready to be called into action when most needed. A fountain of sweets to which we may continually repair, whose waters are inexhaustible, an endless duration, and when heavens and this world are no more, they will spring fresh from the ashes of the universe and will ere long be transplanted in order to adorn the paradise of God. Notice the term fountain of sweets. This was actually the spiritual term in the Reformed tradition, which spoke of the inflaming of the affection in such a way that the one's life was ordered or orientated towards the glory of the triune God and all that God loves. So we kind of lose that language, but that's what he's referring to there. Another phrase I want to call to attention here is the waters are inexhaustible, the phrase there. This is used only because a true biblical friendship has an eternal dimension. Remember that um, from two, two weeks ago, we talked about, as we think about the end times, we are headed to the world of friendship. So again, Hall is resonating the same idea that we talked about. And this is what Michael Haken talks about this mini discourse here. He says, all of this is high praise indeed for the role that the friendship can play in the Christian life and in the light of eternity, not at all an exaggeration. Saying this is just a true, it is what it is. This is how God intended for us. So pursue it. So in conclusion, my friends, I hope this brief example of a friendship between Andrew Fuller and John Ryland Jr. was helpful and encouraging to you. Um, It certainly was for me as well. So if you have enjoyed this type of friendship example uh, from the church history, I, I would like to recommend this book called Iron Sharpens Iron, Friendship and the Grace of God by Michael Haken as it covers more friendship examples of Andrew Fuller's friendship with Thomas Stevens. It's worth looking into. Also John Ryland Jr.'s friendship with John Newton. Most of you know John Newton. He was a senior dude that really mentored and had a deep friendship with John Ryland Jr. Uh, Significantly shaped his life. So again, Fuller and Ryland Jr.'s friendship have stirred my heart to pursue biblical friendship in my own life. And I hope that it has stirred your, your heart as well to pursue biblical friendship in your life. So now next week, looking ahead, uh, we will be closing this Gospel growth series on biblical friendship uh, with a panel Q&A discussion led by Luke. So don't forget to submit <laughs> your questions that uh, you may have as we walk through this series uh, together in this QR code here. So I'll leave the screen up for a little bit. And then send in those questions that you may have so that we can answer your question in our best ability next week. So let's close in prayer. God, I just want to thank you for the example of friendship from the 18th century between Andrew Fuller and John Ryland Jr., how they have valued their friendship in such a way that they pursued it and they found your grace through each other's relationship. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to become the friend that you call us in in our life, to become a close friend, constant friend, candid friend, and the friend who provides counsel and a careful friend and pursuing Christ-centered friendships. And may God use our friendship in our lives to double the joy and have the sorrow in this life. And God, would you help us to treasure the greatest friend who embodied all the marks of the biblical friendship in our life who have pursued us. And so in return, Lord, we we ask that you'd help us to point others to this greatest friend. In your name we pray, amen.